Western Europe. Today, the sprawling countryside is a melting pot for homegrown abundance and luxuries from the outside world. In the 14th century, it was a completely different story. The open air of the Eastern Hemisphere took a sinister quality that would become one of the defining periods of modern mankind. Dark clouds gathered on the horizon, and with them came the spread of an illness so swift and more terrible than anyone could have imagined, the Black Death the Great Pestilence, the Bubonic Plague. The Grim Reaper swung his scythe under many terrible names, and within seven short years, up to 40% of Europeans fell to his hand. From the crowded ports of Italy to the cold northern shores of Scotland, wherever humanity went, this deadly pandemic followed. Whole cities became ghost towns. Crops were left to rot in the fields, Animals were left unintended, and millions, millions of children were left as orphans in what was almost a blink of the eye. The apocalypse that swept across nearly half the world left one question to linger. If an invisible, unsmellable death knocks at your door, how do you escape? Or is it just fate? I'm Scott Parrish, and you're listening to Dying to Eat. Each episode, we'll be focusing on a different country or culture and exploring the relationship between food and death around the world. If you love all these things, then stay tuned for a great show and stick around to the end to see what's cooking this week. France, 1302. The emissary of Philip IV kidnapped Pope Boniface and beat him to death. France, 1312. The King of France abolished the Order of Knights Templar through accusations of witchcraft. The Crusades had finally come to a bloody end. Gunpowder was making its way across trading routes from China, and the Hundred Years' War was growing closer all the time. These events signaled the beginning of a new era, and 1300s Europe was in for a ride. In many places, the new century was unsure at best, and the worst was yet to come. Notably, one place was Scotland, home of Highlands, Lowlands, Islay, Sprayside, and Campbellton, the regions that bore my favorite whiskey. Scotland was a place of deep political unrest for good reason. When King Alexander died in 1286, he left his throne to a three-year-old granddaughter, Margaret. Margaret was known as the uh, Maiden of Norway. Four years later, she died of food poisoning on her way to Scotland. This created a 13-way fight for the throne. While I would have suggested a good WWE cage match, the Guardians of Scotland asked King Edward I of England to mediate and choose between the two strongest contenders. They were uh, John Boyle, Balloyle, excuse my English, I guess, and Robert the Bruce. Now, side note, you'll probably remember Robert the Bruce's name from that movie, Braveheart. The takeaway I want you to have is he's the guy that led Scotland to their first war for the fight for independence from England. So, King Edward chose John, and he was crowned King of Scotland on November 30th of 1292. He swore allegiance to the King Edward as Lord Paramount, 
That's a title that means uh, no superior or uh, no greater authority. A couple of years later, old Lord Paramount Edward demanded Scottish troops invade France. The Scots refused and signed an allegiance to France. A couple of major battles were fought. Scotland was conquered again by England. King John resigned, and the Scottish nobility was forced to swear allegiance to King Edward. A little off topic, though I have to say, I wonder what a king does after he resigns. Does he put out resumes and surf LinkedIn for kingdoms needing rulers? Your guess is as good as mine. If you hear one of those jobs, let me know. I might need it. That sounds like a good place to end the story, right? Not quite. Run this name around your brain. William Wallace. Wallace's sweetheart was murdered by a local sheriff. Wallace took revenge, and he took the life of the sheriff. The English put a bounty on Wallace's head, and he responded by raising a grassroots movement in rebellion against the English. That's pretty kick-butt to me. That was also the beginning of the First War of Independence of Scotland. It ended in 1303 with the execution of William Wallace by the English government. The Scots were on a mission, and though it didn't end the unrest, for two years later, they crowned, uh, for two years after that, they crowned their leader, Robert the Bruce, and he became King of Scotland. The fighting still continued for years, and it finally ended in a treaty in 1328. So residents of both countries began to relax when peace did return. That peace came to an abrupt halt in 1329. Robert the Bruce died. How he died, it's pretty unclear. Some historians say it's leprosy. Others say it was cancer or a stroke, or maybe even tuberculosis. But soon after that, the Second War of Scotland's independence began as Edward Balloyle, the son of King John, keep up with me now, led a group called the Disinherited to reclaim Scotland as their territories that they had lost during the First War. So they landed in this little fishing port named uh, Kinghorn. And just four days later, after the victory of the Battle of Duplin Moor, Edward was crowned King of Scotland. Four months later, Scots were able to unseat him and expel, and expelled him. Following his expulsion, King Edward III of England invaded Scotland from the north and claimed it as his own. This began, this began a long campaign of guerrilla warfare by Scottish citizens, and it also marked the addition of gunpowder to their arsenal. Pretty cool, huh? So, you see that England had a much bigger army. That military force was made of highly skilled and highly trained soldiers that were fitted with weapons and armors. Scottish warriors were primarily farmers and had little or no battle experience. In the terms of gear, it was practically non-existent. What the English also had was confidence. I'd probably say maybe overconfidence. They were fighting in France at the same time they battled to subdue the Scots. They expected that their large numbers and their modern equipment would make really short work of the rebellion. Little did they realize this spat they were having with France would last 160 
15 years. Ugh. Distracted by this formidable enemy, the English just couldn't hold on to a two-front war. They began losing battle after battle with the Scots, and frankly, the War of France was just a lot more important. While events continued to unfold in England, Scotland and France came under a more deadly event that was making its way through Italy and very soon would be on the shores of England. One that would cut hopes of the future completely to shreds. One that would leave graveyards at capacity or even over capacity. One that would leave those that experienced it and believing that it was really the end of times. The increased mobility of their lives as well as the bustling city centers that were becoming more cramped each day were the benchmark of 1300 Europe. No place represented this more than London, England. Between the 12th and 14th centuries, London's population grew from 15,000 people to 80,000 people. It had no sewerage system and human as well as animal waste ran through the streets the city became this breeding ground for deadly diseases. Many of the diseases arrived in trading ships from countries from China and India, France and Italy. Rats were normally the culprits. The Black Plague began sweeping across Europe, China and India, and it reached Bristol, England in 1348. And it literally brought the city to its knees. You know, side note, I think I use literally a little bit too much out of context, but hey, stay with me. Most of the victims died in the first three days of catching this disease. Those that got sick, they, they had like these flu-like symptoms and they began to vomit. Plus they had these pus-filled sores that rose on their cheeks and their groins and their armpit. The skin of the sick would turn purple and, and black and internal hemorrhaging would cause blotches on their skins that looked like bruises. It was horrible. Some people, they died, they died on their own bile. They just choked to death. That's disgusting and horrible in the same time. So the bubonic plague, the, the Black Death, whatever name you want to call it, it arrived in Messina, Sicily in October 1347. It was brought from the Far East trading routes of China, Italy, Persia, Syria, and Egypt through the deep waters of the Black Sea, and it was carried by the fleas on those nasty rats. When 12 trading ships, when 12 trading ships arrived in Messina that awful day, the crew begged for a doctor to be sent to the ships. One look at the ghastly sick and the harbor master refused to let them dock. He demanded that they leave immediately. Unfortunately, it was too late. Some of the dock workers had already contracted disease and a few of the rats had already jumped ship and they'd made their way into the city. A trail of corpses soon followed. Everything happened so quickly there was just no time to respond. Even if they had access to modern day medicine, the infection spread so quickly it just seemed unstoppable. People didn't know how to react, and immediately they began to self-incubate. Even in Sicily, where family and community are an essential part of everyday life, people put space between themselves and the obviously ill. Doctors quit seeing the sick. Instead, priests would come and perform last rites for those that were reported to be a sick. Now imagine, you don't feel well, 
you call your doctor. Yes, he makes house calls. You sit there and you wait on him to show up, and instead your priest does. Oof, man, I can't imagine. So as the disease spread, the death toll rose, and social life just stopped. It came to a point where the dead were left at literally where they fell. Well, there's that word again. Farmers quit going to the fields, animals stopped being taken care of, and famine rose to make things even more bleak. Over the spring and summer of 1348, more than 90,000 people died in Venice, and half the population of Florence. Following mainland trading routes, the disease spread, and it arrived in southern France, and one of the first cities it was seen in was Avignon. At that time, Avignon was the seat of the papacy. In this highly religious country, like it was in 14th century France, plagues were believed to be God's wrath on sinners. And it was brought by him to bring sinners back onto the right path of salvation. I'm sure you have been imagining, imagining exactly what that horror looks like. How could someone living at that time not believe? How could they believe that it was something divine that was bringing all this, this horrible um, retribution on, on, the, on the populace? The Pope used the pandemic to tell people that, it was only the, that the only way that they could survive was to attend Mass and pray. Over the next six weeks, one-third of the church's cardinals died. I wonder how the Pope explained that. As people saw their religious leaders fall, as well as their neighbors and their family members, more, explain, more extreme beliefs made their way into how people saw and dealt with what was happening. One of the extremist cults that rose from the hysteria was the flagellants. Flagellants? I don't think that's right. <laughs> how about flagellants? <laughs> so they would walk barefoot and wear shirts made of hair and smeared with ashes. So maybe flagellants is right. They would walk up and down the blocks of the city and the towns and they would laminate and whip themselves. People would crowd and watch these cultists. My guess is it was akin to seeing like a car wreck today. You know, you don't want to slow down and stare, but... How do you not? And these crowds gathering, they just made the disease spread even faster. So mania held the public in its grip. And many people, they blamed Jewish people. As early as 1348, Jewish people were being dragged from their homes and burned alive at the stake. The reported crime were charges of witchcraft and treason. This brought even more crowds together that led to wider spread of the disease because being burned at the stake was a social event. Oh, I'm glad we're past that. The largest impact could be seen in England. 90% of the population was very, very poor. They were indentured service servants or serfs that worked for estates of lords, and most of them were paid, most of them that were paid ended up paying back most of what they made for rent to the same guys that they worked for. 
As the disease continued to decimate the population, many of the lords and upper class found themselves without servants. If there are any silver linings to this entire story, with the shrinking labor pools, the serfs were able to negotiate higher wages and cheaper rent. Some made up to four times what they made before the pandemic. Nobles were indignant with the rising cost, and they, uh, they went to the king and asked him to create this law to, forbade, to forbid the increase of wages. This led to a lower morale unless people showed up for work. I mean, they just quit coming. And the financial strain just increased on the whole country. As one might expect, most sought after professionals like doctors and clergies. The issue is medicine was just not very much advanced and had not advanced much since Socrates. Now, Socrates, we're talking 400 B.C.-ish, and now we're talking about being in the 1300s. Now, imagine what it would be like visiting your doctor. When you get there, you tell them that you have a fever and you've been vomiting. You have pus sores filled all over your body, you know, normal plague symptoms. So what do you guess the professional recommendation was to combat the plague? Was it some herbal concoction? Maybe a few leeches? Grab a chicken and use the feathers from its rear to rub the pus-filled sores? Now, who would have ever guessed that some chicken soup and butt feathers would cure the plague? But that was seriously some of the homopathic remedies that they used. Not all doctors of that age were blinded by their lack of knowledge. At least some tried to think outside the box. One to note was, and I'm going to do my best uh, to pronounce this French name, Gentile de Foligno. Let's try that on for size. I'm sure that somebody out there that speaks French can help me out with it. So he believed that the pandemic was caused by uh, poisonous material generated by the heart and lungs. And his advice was to eat lettuce. He also said that you should alternate sleeping on your right side and your left side to keep the body or to keep the temperature of your liver steady. For the wounds, he concocted the salve made out of gum resin, the roots of white lilies, and, okay, are you listening? Dried human excrement. <laughs> I know, I know. You might have already guessed uh, none of these treatments were effective. And that doctor, yeah, he died of the plague in 1348. So another notable physician was the Pope's personal practitioner, Guy de Chalilac. Help me out again, French guys. He was contracted to treat the plague patients, and um, after six weeks of study, he was given permission by the Pope to perform autopsies. This was very, very important. It led him to think that the disease was spe spread through the air and through human contact. I wish I had a bell to ring for this guy right now because he's the smartest one in this, this group as far as I can see. He advised people to leave the area where they had contracted the disease. He said, he did support bloodletting and a diet of fruits and uh, these good smelling herbs. And he also suggested that they cleanse the air with fire. 
So both doctors were considered leaders in their field and were highly qualified based on their time and location. Yeah, their recommendations were questionable at best. But really, the plague doctors of the 1300s were more body collectors. Doctors in parentheses, I guess. They lacked the tools that they really needed uh, to get on top of what was happening. And they were given the task of gathering the bodies of the dead and transporting them to mass graves that had been built outside city limits. Soon there were so many bodies that the body collectors or the doctors, they began a side business of offering healing to anyone who was willing to pay them enough. So sadly, many of the desperate victims were willing to pay handsomely for these, let's say, less than credentialed doctors. So the ones, the people that survived, they literally chased the doctors uh, from, uh, from these areas uh, because they weren't doing anything. The treatments that many of these doctors recommended were actually even more deadly than their above-board counterparts. One plague doctor recorded various methods that he tried on the sick. One was to cover the patient in mercury and place her in an oven to attempt to sweat the liver, excuse me, to sweat the fever out of her body. Surprisingly, that patient died and uh, had a few burns. Another doctor described cutting a pigeon and rubbing it over the body of the patient. Again, didn't do much for the patient or the pigeon. So remedies offered to the sick uh, differed not only between the doctors, but they, they differed between the social classes as well. While the poor were do- told to do things like bloodletting or rub onions on their scabs or chop up snakes and rub them on their boils, then the rich would buy emeralds, which were ground into this fine dust and added to a glass of wine or to the patient's food. I don't think that sounds very safe either. Another common cure sold to the rich was ground unicorn horn. So if you're into raising unicorns, then I I guess the plague was a good time for you. And it, it, it was believed, actually, that unicorn horn powder could even bring back the dead. But the ground unicorn horn, which was found more often than not to really be ground rhino horn, really did nothing. Some cures were worse than uh, even useless. Take the practice of eating arsenic or drinking mercury or sitting over a fire, or in a sewer to drive out the fever. Looking back, there were a few cures that were more tragically hilarious than directly harmful. For instance, the most popular cure for the nimbility was called the radic. The radic ingredients differed depending on the recipe. With some recipes, it contained over a hundred different ingredients, mostly included things like roasted viper flesh, barks of various trees, a multitude of minerals, and large amounts of opium. Hmm. There would be, they would then be boiled and subsequently fermented for months and then sold with uh, money to uh, purchase, uh, to the people that could afford uh, to purchase really expensive medicine. So high on snake venom and opiates, 
many patients, well, let's say they felt better anyway. Now, we know what kinds of absurd treatments these doctors were thinking up to try to come to the end of the spread of the plague. The obvious next question is, why? Why would anyone ever, ever think of strapping a live animal to a wound, covering it in excrement, or ingesting various poison substances would help? Where did these insane theories come from? How could you be smart enough to run an entire civilization for thousands of years, and a pretty successful one at that, and yet be stupid enough to come up with this stuff? The first, simpler to answer is this. There was a lot of book burning during the Crusades, and most of whatever was left over were prayer books, not medical books. Second, slightly more complicated answer is that most doctors in the 1300s treated patients based on the three theories of medicine. These were the four humors of the human body, the application of herbalism and botany for healing and divine intervention. The belief in the four humors as the cause of illness dates all the way back to ancient Greece and was one of the biggest reasons for treatments such as bloodletting. The basis of this belief was that each body was governed by four materials or humors that would cause illness if they were thrown out of balance. Blood, yellow bile, black bile, and phlegm. They didn't know anything about germs or immune systems, so they were pretty much just noted the kind of stuff that when it comes out of you you're, when you're sick, and then they kind of made a decision what to do based on that. The second theory, herbalism and botany had to do with putting those humors back into balance. Everyone knows the famous children's rhyme, Ring Around the Rosy, A Pocket Full of Posies. While the history of that rhyme can only be traced back to the later plague of the 1600s, the belief is that a literal pocket full of posies would help prevent death that was already around in the 1300s. Most doctors would prescribe patients to walk around smelling or burning certain herbs and flowers in order to cleanse the bad-smelling air that was thought to bring the humors out of balance and then cause the illness. So the third theory of medicine was to the belief that the illnesses such as plagues were set in emotions were set in emotion by acts of divine intervention. So this idea was similar to the biblical plague that God caused in Egypt. Pandemics were divine punishment for the sins that people committed. With these three theories as the basis of medicine, doctors would go through the options of what made the most sense in their framework until they were forced to try more and more absurd methods. It's, you know, a process of trial and error. Uh, it's like finding a needle in a plague-riddled haystack. But they had to try something, right? Between the plague and the ongoing wars, the body count of the 1300s Europe was insurmountable. While funeral traditions had previously been those of the Catholic Church, a proper service and funeral gathering became a deadly affair for those still living. Before the plague, 
When a lord died, his body would have been wiped down with clean water by a servant in order to purify it and then cover it with a thin shroud and placed in an elaborate coffin. This coffin would have been carried through the streets of the, uh, the city to the cathedral and falling behind the coffin would be the legal poor, cripples, the starving widows, the orphans, the blind. You get the idea. All of those people would be falling and wailing and praying for the deceased Lord as they were considered by the church to be the unfortunate innocents. Thus, their prayers would believe to be more notorious, I guess, would be the correct word there, than those of people that did better. Once the procession reached the church, the body would lie in state for maybe a week, so that anyone that wanted to come and visit and send them off, you know, pay their respects, uh, they, they had plenty of time. For a man of a lord's rank, his body would have been covered with expensive spices like cinnamon, which would have been brought in to Western Europe via the, uh, the Silk Road. While the Lord's body was in state, his family would hold a, a really extravagant banquet during which all of the Lord's vassals, you know, the family, the friends, and the other members of the upper caste would arrive at the Lord's estate and partake in a feast of meat and fresh fruits and cakes and wine. Now, that's not sounding so bad, huh? The professional poor, that sounds interesting in itself, just to say it, the professional poor. They would be paid for their service with uh, bread and cheese, and if the Lord's family was particularly benevolent, they would also be given a, a penny in thanks. During the time that the body was in state, the Lord's family would have, they'd make a large donation to the church in order to have the bells rung multiple times, once to commemorate his death, and once each hour for watchful prayers, and once for his hour of burial, and then one last time for the one month anniversary of his death. After the extravagant meal and viewing period was over, the Lord's body would be buried in a marked grave on a private church property. Finally, on the one-month anniversary of his death, his family would have, they'd hold one last banquet, and that would officially mark the ending of the, uh, of the mourning period. Pre-plague funerals for the serving class were similar to those of lords. Of course, they were just not as extravagant because they just didn't have the means. Like the lords, the servants would the servant would have his body wiped down with clean water in order to cleanse it. However, he would have been wiped down by his wife instead of a servant. He would then be covered with a shroud, and his body would be taken to a smaller church where it would lie in state for a couple of days, probably. It would allow his friends and family, especially if they didn't live close, to travel in to pay their last respects. Unlike the Lord, however, the poor families, they didn't have the money to hire professional poor to act as mourners or uh, to have this huge funeral procession. So it would, be, it would mainly be composed of his family and friends. And as his body lay in state, the family that he worked for would have paid the church a few more pennies to have his name said in Mass and have the church bell rang to commemorate his passing. A lot simpler, right? 
For a time, this would be considered fairly lavish and showed how valued he was to the family which he had worked for. While in the church, his family would have a feast. Of course, it wasn't a feast like they had the Lord's. Theirs would consist of small cakes and ale, which they'd share with their friends and their, ex and their extended family. After the small feast, the Lord's family would have him have paid for a simple shroud burial in the churchyard. So not really too bad either, just a lot simpler. The final pre-plague funeral, which we will look, will be that of a young peasant girl. Unlike a servant, neither her nor her family have any ties to the upper class because that is what they would have that means that they would have to pay for the funeral themselves. And when she died, she too would be wiped clean with the water, but it would be like by her mom. Her head would be wrapped in a flower crown made by her siblings or her cousins or maybe her mom or aunts. And then she'd be wrapped in a sheet. Unlike modern times, flowers were rarely included in funerals. The only exception was when a young girl died. Instead of being taken to the church, her body would be laid in state in her family's home for the same couple of days, you know, so that everyone had time to come by and give their respects. While the viewing was going on, the family would have a small meal where they provide small cakes and ales for, for whoever showed up. And afterwards, she'd be buried in an unmarked grave in a common consecrated ground. Unlike the servant or the Lord, only her body would be buried. There'd be no coffin. There'd be no wrapping. This was so if the graveyard became too full, her bones could be easily dug up and moved to a bone pile and another body could be placed in the same grave. So once the plague hit peaceful nature of funerals just evaporated. It was just this endless parade of bodies as the living struggled to deal with the ever-growing losses and the fear of catching the illness and the problem of what to do with the remains. It, it was just overbearing. In the beginning, the bodies were buried in relatively the same way as it always had been, in small churchyards. But as the number of the bodies grew, so did the amount of land that they needed to accommodate the bodies. In cities like Avignon, France, as the death toll rose, rose the clergy took a mass consecrating large plots of land, and eventually the Pope consecrated the Rhone, you know, the river, so that the bodies of the plague victims could be thrown into it. But as fear began to grip the hearts of the people and husbands left their wives and parents refused to take care of their sick kids, instead they fled the city uh, to get away from the death. And the bodies of those that died were left to rot wherever they fell. It could be in their homes, it could be in the streets, it could be in the fields, wherever they fell. Eventually, the first plague doctors would begin to sweep through the cities, collecting the dead and moving them to mass graves known as plague pits, where people were buried by the thousands. In the city of Sena, Italy, victims were thrown into pits between the unfinished cathedral and the old city walls, and they're still there today. One author of the time described the sight of the thousands of bodies laid one on top of the other, 
with only thin amounts of dirt between them as being reminiscent of layers of cheese in a lasagna. Wow. <laughs> Just to wrap my mind around this. In Milan, the houses of the sick were locked and shuttered, leaving them to die alone, while in other cities, the victims and their families would be locked in their homes and the homes would be burned to the ground. Some of the first cities affected by the plague would even burn the bodies of the dead by the hundreds in hope of preventing the spread of the disease. Prior to the plague, death wasn't even, it wasn't even seen as a bad thing. Because of their short life expectancy, people prior to 1347 truly lived in order to die. When they would, they would finally get this chance to move to heaven and they'd get rewarded for, you know, their good deeds and their work and their commitment. Their funerals were an example of that as they were marked by large gatherings and by feasts, as I've talked about already. But the fear of death that the plague created changed how funerals were held and bodies were no longer held in state in their homes and last rites were no longer delivered to the dying. Instead, funerals became much more somber and death stopped being looked at in this positive light and the tonal change of the western uh, the western hemisphere was uh, it was changed and it's really never gone back the famine that inevitably accompanied the plague as a shortage of workers grew and the food stores dwindled forced people to get more creative when it came to staying fed. But one staple of the medieval diet remained popular throughout the pandemic across all classes. Pottage. Pottage is a general term for this one pot soup or this stew and when I made it, it was very interesting because when I started, that's what I saw. I was like, well, this is just a stew. There's nothing to this. And it's basically this mashup of whatever you have. It's kind of like a the shepherd's pie in Ireland. Or it's like a, it's like a lot of the casseroles that we, we even eat today. I'm going to tell you about my own version of pottage which I've tested and I've refined to give you an authentic idea of what the kinds of flavors and ingredients that they used in medieval English pottage. In the interest of getting the most delicious version, we're going to go beyond that peasant pottage. Instead, we're going to make something that's more fit for a lord or a king. For this recipe, we'll need one six to eight inch leek cut up into quarter inch rounds, one tablespoon of fresh finely chopped thyme, two tablespoons of freshly chopped parsley, one pound each of chopped button mushrooms, carrots, and turnips, two pounds of cube sirloin, six slices of thick bacon cooked and crumbled, eight ounces of Merlot, eight ounces of beef stock, 32 ounces of chicken stock, one cup of quick cooked oats. Yep, I said oats. That's the surprise for me too. Three tablespoons of butter, two tablespoons of olive oil, one tablespoon of sea salt, and one tablespoon of coarse black pepper. 
Now, keep in mind, if you didn't get all that as I was going through it, it'll be in the notes afterwards. To start, we'll heat the olive oil over medium heat. Next, we go ahead and we add the carrots and the turnips and let them cook for about five minutes. We're going to stir them so that they don't stick. Then add the leeks and let it sit for about another five minutes. Add the mushrooms for another five minutes. Make sure you keep an eye on it and keep stirring, especially after you add the mushrooms. When the veggies are starting to soften up, add in 12 ounces of chicken stock as well as the sirloin and the bacon and let that cook until the meat browns. One at a time, stir in the rest of the chicken stock, the beef stock, the wine, the butter, the herbs, and the spices. Turn the heat down to simmer and pop a lid on it. Let it cook for, I don't know, 30 minutes or so, stirring occasionally. And when it's done, go ahead and remove it from the heat. Add the oats last and let it sit with the lid on for five more minutes. To get the full medieval experience, I recommend pairing it with some fresh bread and a good spicy sweet wine. A good spiced sweet wine. Now, before I finish up here, let me go back and talk about that whole oats thing. I made this dish, and when I got to the oats, I had to kind of take a breath because I thought that I was going to completely ruin this nice stew that I'd made. While it turned this crazy, yucky color, it was very tasty. Now, I've got a few friends that are my guinea pigs, let's say, and uh, they're open for trying just about anything I cook. God bless them. Thank you, friends. They all actually really loved it. So, while you're thinking about stew with oats in it and the yucky color it's going to turn, be open-minded. It's actually pretty good. So, I've been your host, Scott Parrish, and I'd like to thank you for listening to Dying to Eat. This show was made possible by viewers just like you, and I really appreciate your support. If you like what you've heard and you'd like to hear more, then look for our new episodes that will be coming out each week on your favorite podcast platform. Make sure to drop us a like and follow the show to stay up to date on your latest episodes. Until next time, stay lively.